Hello everyone and welcome to the Russian Empire History Podcast. The history of all the peoples of the Russian Empire. I'm your host, J.P. Bristow. This is Season 1, The Forest, The Steppe and the Birth of the Russian Empire. Episode 40, The Vladimirovichi. We're entering something of a new phase in the tale of bygone years, although one that may not make a huge amount of difference to start with. We're leaving the age of legend. Vladimir has baptized Rus. He has founded churches and monasteries and brought monks from Byzantium to work at them. Sometime around now, the second and third decades of the 11th century, some of those monks are going to start writing down records that become parts of the chronicles. We haven't quite reached Nestor, the man who gets credited with putting together the tale of bygone years at the Monastery of the Caves in Kiev, but we are only a few decades away now. Will this make a difference to our narrative? Let's press on and find out. Once it has finished its extended panegyric to Vladimir, the tale continues. Upon his father's death, Sviatopolk settled in Kiev and began handing out largesse to the inhabitants. They accepted the gifts, but their hearts were with Boris. Boris returns with the army, having failed to find the Pechenegs. He learns of his father's death and mourns him deeply. He stops at the Alta River, where his father's retainers encourage him to take the throne, since he already has the army. Boris objects, it's not for me to raise my hand against my elder brother. Now that my father has passed away, let him take his place in my heart. With no fight in the offing, the soldiers disperse, leaving Boris with his servants. Sadly for Boris, Sviatopolk is of a different mind. He sends messages to Boris, promising peace and the territory his father had already given to him, but actually he was plotting to kill him. He travelled by night to Vishgorod and summoned Putcha and the Boyars, demanding that they pledge their loyalty. They declare themselves ready to lay down their lives for Sviatopolk, and he tells them to go and kill his brother. They come to the altar, finding Boris at his prayers. He realizes what is happening and declares his readiness to die with various biblical quotations. He ends by praying that God will not hold his death against his brother and lies down. A servant throws himself across Boris to protect him, but the men stab them with lances. Then they cut off the servant's head so they can steal a necklace that Boris had given to him. Boris himself is wounded, but still alive. They roll him up in canvas and take him to Sviatopolk. When Sviatopolk sees his brother still alive, he orders two Varangians to kill him. The tale lords Boris as a saint and condemns his killers at length. Meanwhile, Sviatopolk thinks to himself, quote, I've killed Boris, how can I kill Gleb? He sends him deceitful messages as well, and Gleb sets off for Kiev. While he is en route, 
Yaroslav hears of Vladimir and Boris's deaths and informs Gleb. Gleb mourns deeply. While he is praying, Sviatopolk's men arrive and kill him. According to the tale, Gleb rejoiced to see his brother again in heaven, and the tale expounds on their holiness for a couple of pages. Sviatopolk kills another brother, Sviatoslav, as he attempts to flee to Hungary, and, says the tale, begins to scheme as to how he will kill all his brothers and rule alone. He once again distributes furs and money to the people of Kiev to buy their support. Meanwhile, Yaroslav is in Novgorod. He has many Varangians in his service, and they get into a fight with the locals, resulting in the men of Novgorod killing the Varangians in the marketplace. Yaroslav is angry and leaves for Rakum, sending a demand to the leaders of the city to come and see him and then killing him on the very day that he receives a message from his sister that his father is dead. Sviatopolk has killed Boris and is hunting Gleb and has taken over Kiev. Yaroslav regrets killing his retainers, who would have come in useful now. He informs his subjects of the news. They declare that they are still willing to fight for Yaroslav, who recruits another 1,000 Varangians and marches against Sviatopolk. When Sviatopolk hears that Yaroslav is coming, he recruits an army of Pechenegs and marches towards Lubech on the other side of the Dnieper to Yaroslav. The brothers base off across the river for three months with neither daring to attack. One day, Sviatopolk's general rides along the shore and mocks the men of Novgorod. They take offence and tell Yaroslav that they will attack the next day. While Sviatopolk's men feast, Yaroslav prepares his army to cross before dawn. They disembark, pushing their boats away from the shore, and attack. The carnage, says the tale, was terrible. The Pechenegs could not engage because they were on the other side of a lake. Yaroslav's men drove Sviatopolk's army out onto the lake, where the thin autumn ice broke beneath them. Sviatopolk fled to the Lyaks, and Yaroslav takes the throne in Kiev, after ruling in Novgorod for 28 years. Two years later, in 1018, Sviatopolk returns with his father-in-law, Boleslav, and an army of Poles. Yaroslav mocks him for being fat, but the Poles have caught him unawares and take Kiev before he can gather his forces. Yaroslav flees to Novgorod, intending to keep going to Scandinavia, but the people refuse to allow him. They demand that he fight Boleslav and Sviatopolk and gather funds which Yaroslav uses to hire another army of Varangians. Meanwhile in Kiev, the treacherous Sviatopolk turns on Boleslav, sending out his men to kill any Lyaks in the city. Boleslav flees Kiev, taking Yaroslav's property and sisters, and takes back the cities of Chervin on his way home. Yaroslav marches towards Sviatopolk, he halts at the altar where Boris was slain and declares 
Quote, the blood of my brother cries aloud to thee, O Lord. Avenge the blood of this just man. Visit upon this criminal the sorrow and terror that thou didst inflict upon Cain to avenge the blood of Abel. End quote. The carnage this time were such as had never been seen before in Rus. Three times the soldiers clashed in great slaughter, but Yaroslav conquered and Sviatopolk fled. According to the tale, a devil came upon him, making his bones soft so he could not ride. His men placed him on a litter. He was convinced he was pursued and could not rest, continually driving his men on even though they could see no one hunting them. He began to faint, recovering and again crying out that they run from their pursuers. He fled across Rus and into the wilderness between Poland and Bohemia where he died a miserable death and was cast down into bonds and torment everlasting, an example to the princes of Rus of the punishment that they would face if they committed the sin of Cain. So Yaroslav settles in Kiev with his followers. In 1020 he has a son whom he names Vladimir. But the killing is not yet over. Brachislav, son of Izyaslav, son of Vladimir, who had been ruling in Polotsk, takes Novgorod and loots it. Yaroslav returns to defend them. Meanwhile, in the south, his brother Mstislav, ruling in Tmutorokan, has defeated the Kasogians and made them his vassals. And in 1023, he brings a large force, including Khazars and Kasogians, north against Yaroslav. He arrives at Kiev while Yaroslav is in Novgorod, but the people refuse to admit him, so he moves to Chernikiv. Magicians are apparently causing famine in central Rus, so Yaroslav takes care of them, and then recruits another army of Varangians. Yaroslav marches on Mstislav, who gathers his troops, placing the Severians against the Varangians and keeping his own men at the back. He orders the attack, and the Severians and Varangians exhaust themselves in the slaughter. Yaroslav flees, but Mstislav is delighted with the sight that greets him in the morning. Here lies a Severian, here a Varangian, but my retainers are unharmed. From this position of victory, somewhat inexplicably, Mstislav proposes that Yaroslav rule in Kiev while he rules in Chernikiv. For the time being, Yaroslav declines to return to Kiev and rules from the safe distance of Novgorod. But in 1026 they make peace. The brothers divide Rus along the Dnieper. Yaroslav rules the Kiev side and Mstislav the other side. Despite everything that has happened over the previous ten years, they do manage to live in peace. Yaroslav has another son named Sviatoslav and then another named Sievolod. Borisław dies and the brothers conduct a joint expedition to recapture Chervin. Then, in 1036, 
Mstislav falls sick on a hunting expedition, dies and is buried in the Church of the Saviour that he had founded. The tale concludes, quote, Thereafter, Yaroslav assumed the entire sovereignty and was the sole ruler in the land of... So, we might be entering the age of proper history, but I think you will, of course, a bit of the old church myth-building around Boris and Gleb. And there are a few other strange bits for us to dig into as we look into what we know about what really happened. Although I don't think I'm going to get into the wizards. Just like what happened at the death of Sviatoslav, the death of Vladimir kicks off a power struggle among his sons. You might say this had already been brewing, as Vladimir had been preparing to attack Yaroslav in Novgorod, and Yaroslav had, like every ruler of Novgorod, been hiring Varangians to attack the south. This meant that when Vladimir died, neither he nor his most favoured or powerful sons were in Kiev, and that gave Sviatoslav his chance. It's not clear exactly where Sviatoslav was. If you recall from the previous episode, he had fallen out with his father over some incident, probably involving the Poles, which had resulted in his imprisonment. He could still have been in prison when word came of Vladimir's death, or he could have been in exile in Poland. Whatever the case, as soon as he made his move in Kiev, he needed to start handing out money to buy support. And according to the tale, people were happy to take it without actually supporting him in return. With his position precarious, Spiatoslav was left with the only option for insecure pretenders. Kill all his rivals. So he tricks and kills first Boris, who, as the man at the head of Vladimir's army, might have had the best claim to the throne, and then Gleb. The tale gets quite into how saintly these two brothers were, which might be rather a surprising claim, and how evil Sviatopolk was. If you recall, Sviatopolk was the adopted rather than natural son of Vladimir. His father was Yaropolk, the brother Vladimir killed, and his mother was allegedly a formerly a Greek nun who his father Sviatoslav had abducted on a southern campaign and who was taken by Vladimir as booty after the death of Yaropol. For these reasons, the child of a defiled nun and fratricide, Sviatopolk has earned the sobriquet of the accursed. But there's not actually a whole lot of evidence that he did any of this killing. It could equally well have been Yaroslav who killed his brother. After all, he had been preparing to go to war with Vladimir and Boris. The whole section dealing with Boris and Gleb is most likely a later insertion, a story created to legitimize Yaroslav taking the throne by force and discredit his rival. And once again we have the tale seeming to incorporate some liturgical elements 
But we have a bit of a difference this time, because Baris and Gleb were actually the first Rus saints. Although scholars have moved on from the idea that they were already beatified during Yaroslav's reign, it's possible that it happened as early as 1080, and it certainly took place by the reign of Vladimir Monomach, for whom Nestor was writing his chronicle. They were recognized as saints across the Eastern Church, including in Constantinople. You may also recall Monica White mentioning the Rus tradition of military saints, saints who were believed to intercede for Rus soldiers whose icons were carried into battle. Baris and Gleb were the first of these. What this means is that rather than directly incorporating Byzantine liturgical elements, the tale's story of the deaths of Baris and Gleb incorporates elements of the earliest native Rus liturgies, although they too also drew on Byzantine liturgies. Scholars have argued over the source of the stories, whether there was a model that the Rus church just copied with new names added. There are indeed other stories of martyred princes and nobles across Europe, and some of these would have reached Rus through missionary tales or as part of the liturgies for saints' days. Wenceslas of Bohemia, the same of good King Wenceslas' fame, is often put forward as a likely candidate, but most scholars argue that the similarities in the stories are down to the common tropes of church liturgies, and the stories appeared independently. Most scholars also agree that it was a top-down cult, created by the ruling dynasty to reinforce their legitimacy as divinely blessed rulers, rather than something that arose from popular veneration. Although some do argue that it derives from earlier pagan priest-king traditions. Baris and Gleb are the first Rus saints by quite a margin. Their liturgies were created over a century before any other local saints, and are known from 18 surviving manuscripts dating between the 11th and 13th centuries. It is quite a substantial corpus for the time. There are two versions, traditionally ascribed to the 11th century Metropolitan John of Kiev and a mid-12th century Bishop Arkady of Novgorod. The liturgy links Boris and Gleb to St. Stephen. Stephen appears in the Acts of the Apostles as one of the seven deacons that the Apostles appoint to take care of needy members of the church in Jerusalem. He offends the Jews with his teachings and is taken to the Sanhedrin, where he presents the teachings of Jesus as the fulfillment of Jewish scriptures. The crowd listening is angered and stones him to death making him the first martyr. He dies gracefully, asking God to forgive his killers, and with his face appearing like an angel. In the tale, Baris also prays that his killers be forgiven, while Gleb is transfigured to appear angelic in his last moments. So the chronicler sets a parallel between the first native Rus martyrs and the first Christian martyr. There are several references to the sin of Cain, 
the son of Adam and Eve, who committed the first murder when he slew his brother Abel and was cursed by God. It's easy enough to see what the chronicler is referring to here, but it is also trying to set out the idea that it's especially evil for princes to kill each other, and that coming to the throne by murder makes the king cursed rather than blessed. Unfortunately, that's an idea that's going to have limited traction. Boris's death is more or less based on the Passion of Christ. As Jesus was the beloved son of his heavenly father, Boris is called the son who Vladimir loved most. As Jesus rejected summoning armies of angels to save himself and willingly went to his sacrifice, so Boris rejects the throne and refuses to use his army to attack Kiev. Like Judas meeting secretly with the chief priests to plot against Jesus, Sviatopolk travels to Vizhgorod to secretly plot with the boyars against Boris. As Jesus is betrayed to his death after a kiss, the sign of peace, Boris is murdered after Sviatopolk sends him messages of peace. As Jesus knew he was to die and waited praying, Boris also knew and was found at prayer. And as Jesus suffered a prolonged death and was pierced with a spear, Boris is also pierced with spears and takes a long time to die. This kind of presentation was very normal in ancient tales of martyrs. While there was an idea that people who died for Christ were martyrs, there was also a tradition that people who died like Christ, called imitators of Christ, were martyrs. Through their deaths, they were seen as partaking in Jesus' sacrificial death, and that is why they received a special blessing and miracle-working powers. The surviving manuscripts show that there was an unusually large amount of songs included in the services for these saints. And within a couple of decades, we have the tale describing their bodies being moved to a church bearing their name. We have already heard how Vladimir was presented as being on the level of the apostles, and now his sons are Rus' first saints. This was the new religion of Rus being used to make the dynasty's claim to the throne unassailable through the liturgy, which, as Christianity expanded through Rus, was the vehicle that taught the people what they were supposed to believe. As Sean Griffin puts it, quote, The faithful did not argue about the parting of the Red Sea, and so they did not argue about the calling of Vladimir. They did not doubt the virgin birth, and so they did not doubt the dynasty's autocratic power. The liturgy broadcast these native myths in exactly the same way as it broadcast the biblical and Byzantine ones. The Rurikids reigned in Rus for the same reason that David and Solomon reigned in Israel, Christ reigned in heaven, and Constantine reigned in Rome. They were the chosen of God. End quote. (laughs) 
Meanwhile, back in Kiev, Brother is still fighting Brother. Sviatopolk managed to hold Kiev for a year before Yaroslav and his army of Varangians expelled him. From the tale, we can see that his struggle to win the people of Kiev over continued, and he was forced to rely on the Pechenegs, meaning two foreign armies were fighting over who got to rule. At this point, we get to another incident missing from the tale and all the other Russian records, but which we can find in the chronicles of neighbouring countries. Poland at the time was at war with the Holy Roman Empire over two issues. First, the political independence of Poland, and second, which of them got to rule Bohemia. Right around this point, the German emperor, Henry II, was trying to capture the Polish city of Glogau, and as this campaign was progressing, Yaroslav attacked Poland. The aim was to split the Polish forces and make it easier for the Germans to win in the West. And we know this because the plan and the motivations are set out in detail in the German chronicles. We don't need to look too far for a reason either. At face value, Henry II was clearly a better candidate for friend and ally than Sviatopolk's father-in-law and supporter, Boyesław Hrobry. We can also take a pretty good guess at why it's missing from the Russian chronicles, because from the German chronicles we know that before Yaroslav could open this second front, Henry received a proposal from Boleslav to exchange prisoners, including some of Henry's family, and maybe to make peace while they were at it. What probably happened was that Boyeswav had heard that Yaroslav was moving and decided that he would be better off making peace with Henry and sorting out the Rus problem for good. Anyway, that is what the German chronicler, Tietmar, who was at the negotiations, thought. On 30th of January 2018, Henry and Boleslav concluded a peace and Henry even gave him some soldiers to march with the grateful Boleslav to attack Rus. Not really too surprising that Yaroslav would choose to cut such an embarrassing episode from his chronicles, especially given what came next. Boleslav extended his army further with a thousand Pechenegs, 500 Hungarians and some amount of Rus from Vizhgorod loyal to Sviatopolk and met Yaroslav's army of Rus and Varangians at the Buch on 22nd of July. The tale skips over this with the brief words Boyeslav with Sviatopolk and his Lyaks attacked Yaroslav, but Tietmar recorded eyewitness reports from the Germans in the army, stating that the Poles broke the Rus at the Buch with a great slaughter and marched on towards Kiev. Yaroslav captured one of Sviatopolk's cities as he retreated, but was then forced to flee back to Novgorod. Boyeslav ordered his Pechenegs to burn Kiev, which quickly persuaded the town people to surrender and admit Boyeslav and Sviatopolk as conquerors. The description Tietmar gives of this happening is the only contemporary description of Kiev that we have. Tietmar says it was a great city with 400 churches, 
eight marketplaces and numerous inhabitants who had previously resisted the Pechenegs and defeated all enemies. The two victors were greeted by the Archbishop, representing the city, at the Church of St. Sophia. This is an interesting point in itself, as it shows the church was well-established enough just a couple of centuries after the official conversion to take on the task of acting as the capital's spokesperson. Another thing the German chronicles seem very clear about is that this was Olyasov's victory, not Sviatopolk's. According to the tale, Yaroslav was now ready to abandon Rus and flee from Novgorod into exile in Scandinavia, but the people persuaded him to remain. However, based on Scandinavian traditions and records, it's quite likely that Yaroslav entered into an agreement with King Olaf Skotkonung of Sweden for aid in retaking Kiev. According to the saga of St. Olaf, Yaroslav sealed the alliance by marrying Ingegerd, the daughter of Olaf Skotkonung, while he was in Novgorod planning his return to Kiev. The alliance between Sviatopolk and Boleslav did not endure long. After less than a year, Boleslav took Yaroslav's two sisters and the looted wealth of Kiev and headed home, returning the Chervin land to Polish rule on the way. It might not have been a friendly separation, because when Yaroslav and his Varangians recovered Kiev not too long afterwards, Sviatopolk fled to the Pechenegs rather than Poland, and it was with the Pechenegs that he fought his final battle on the altar, the place where he had killed Boris, before being, according to the tale, tormented to death by devils in the Polish-Bohemian borderland. Yaroslav enjoys a couple of years of respite after the defeat of his main challenger, but in 2024 he once again needs to recruit a Varangian army to deal with another brother, Mstislav, in a battle between north and south, once again with foreign armies on each side. This whole episode does not go how we might expect it to. Mstislav had been given Tmu Torokan to rule and had built himself up into a powerful figure dominating the remnants of the Khazars and the Kosogians in the North Caucasus. He makes his challenge by moving his base north to Chernikiv and meets Yaroslav at the Battle of Listven. At this point, instead of Yaroslav fleeing to Novgorod again and Mstislav taking Kiev, they just agree to divide Rus between them and live in peace. Mstislav takes the eastern bank of the Dnieper and Yaroslav takes the west, including Kiev and Novgorod. Remarkably, the peace holds for the next ten years, until Mstislav dies without an heir, making Yaroslav finally, after twenty-one years, or twenty-three if we count from when he stopped paying tribute to his father, the sole ruler of the land of Rus. More or less, he throws his last living brother, Sudislav, in prison in Pskov, and there's still another branch of the family holding Polotsk, but near enough. 
So what to make of this 20-year succession struggle? The hagiography of Baris and Gleb is enough reason to treat the tale's narrative with a bit of caution, and some scholars have argued that the whole thing is a cover-up for what was actually a usurpation by Yaroslav. The Varangians fighting for Yaroslav turn up in several sagas and present a rather different picture of some of the events there. In Amun's saga, they help Yaroslav dispose of a rival called Burislav by means of a trick involving a rope, a tree and a tent, followed by murdering the surprised Borislav. Yaroslav is impressed by this use of trickery to kill his opponent, and there's no hint of any prayerful acceptance of death to be found. Burislav is generally interpreted as a composite of Sviatopolk and Boleslav, but some scholars have argued that he was actually Boris. Neither Sviatopolk nor Boleslav was murdered by a bunch of hired Varangians, but Boris was. Were they hired by Sviatopolk, as the tale says, or by Yaroslav, as the saga has it? Franklin and Shepard argue in The Emergence of Rus that the tale's treatment of Yaroslav is not sufficiently positive to be treated as propaganda intended to obscure the true tale of his cunning plots. The tale's Yaroslav is indecisive, keeps losing battles and running away, and doesn't have particularly good judgment. Maybe, but the fact that Yaroslav was already in rebellion before Vladimir died doesn't look too good for him, in my opinion. But the main problem for Rus, as I mentioned at the end of the last episode, is Vladimir's episodes to create a unified kingdom didn't include the necessary institutions to prevent it collapsing into civil war as soon as he was dead. I'm sure many of you will have noted that the tale does not call any of the sons the true heir or the rightful heir. There does not seem to have been any system for deciding who was the heir. Maybe if Vladimir had had a son with Anna of Byzantium, then things would have been different. As it is, no one seems to know whether it should be the eldest son or the favourite son or some other kind of designated successor. How does the hierarchy work between sons from different wives and concubines? Even when Yaroslav finally appears to be secure on the throne, he still throws his last surviving brother into jail. We don't get to hear from the ordinary people, apart from the residents of Kiev who are apparently unenthusiastic about Sviatoslav. But there's certainly no suggestion that the people of Kiev, Palotsk, Novgorod or Tmutorokan are clamouring to return to a unified Rus. Maybe they weren't, as the people of Kiev also reject Mstislav after he defeats Yaroslav, and Yaroslav runs away again. All the contenders rely on foreign armies, even though the Novgorodians do appear to actually support Yaroslav. He is forced to recruit Varangian armies six times while Sviatopolk uses an army supplied by his father-in-law, and Mstislav uses the people he has conquered. Although the tale has been consistently enshrining the ruling dynasty as God's chosen, equal to the apostles and now literally saints, 
which of course means that going against them is going against God, that's no help if you have 12 of them and don't know which one is supposed to be ruling. Although the tale gives Vladimir an image according with his title of the Great, it turns out to lack substance. Once he is gone, Rus falls into weakness and chaos. But on the other hand, he definitely succeeded in one thing, making Kiev the center of everything, the mother of all Rus cities. All the brothers who throw their hat into the ring set out to take Kiev. None of them decides to carve out their own new fiefdom. But even here we have to make a footnote. Once he is denied Kiev and settles in Chernihiv, Mstislav does begin working to make it into a city that rivals Kiev. We know from the tale that he was the stronger militarily, and it's likely that he regarded himself as the senior of the brothers. He certainly made building plans as if he was. He started building walls to create the largest fortified citadel in Rus. The Church of the Saviour at his palace was one of the biggest structures anywhere in Eastern Europe in the pre-Mongol period. Like Vladimir and like Yaroslav would in Kiev, he imported architects and artisans from Byzantium, where he would have had extensive contacts after his time in Tmutorakan. The Church of the Saviour was built in the Byzantine style, using Byzantine techniques, with frescoes and mosaics to be installed by Byzantine artists. But Mstislav died before he could complete his project. If he had had a son, the wars might have started again, but instead Yaroslav was left unopposed. The succession struggle following Vladimir's death shows Rus growing in importance in medieval Europe. It involved interventions from Poland, the Holy Roman Empire, Sweden, Norway, and Bohemia. And German chroniclers felt that they needed to record the events in detail. And as we shall see, this is only the beginning. Thank you to my new patron, Holly, and thank all of you for listening. And then join me next time to find out how Yaroslav earns the title of The Wise and creates the Golden Age of Rus. (laughs) 